The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. One of the most important things I think that Jesus ever said is directly related to us and why we're here today, and that's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and you can follow along as we read that verse. And this verse is in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's happening at the end of Jesus' life and the end of his ministry. He had a public ministry of about three years and lived to be 30 years of age before he gave his life. And he knew that it was time to die and give his life for his people and return to his Father in heaven was soon. And three years he'd been spending and investing a lot of time in his 12 apostles, these 12 guys that followed him around everywhere he went to minister to them. And he deliberately had his apostles following him because he was trying to train them trying to train them with teaching and with verbal truth and the Old Testament Scriptures. But Jesus was also trying to teach them by modeling. That's why He wanted them to follow Him wherever He went. Hey guys, just watch. Watch me. And that's a very important component to to teaching is modeling. Watching the Master in action. And Jesus was the Master. So they've been ministering and Jesus has been serving and it's the end of His life now. And So in Matthew 16... Uh, Jesus starts to get some criticism from his critics, Pharisees, Sadducees, and others who didn't like him. They were jealous of him. He's out doing public ministry, and he pulls his uh, 12 apostles aside, and he asks them a question, because now he's been ministering for three years. Everybody had an opinion about Jesus, which is true today. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus everywhere you go, don't they? Every religion believes something about Jesus. Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine, every single year, usually around Easter, they have an opinion about Jesus. Almost every single year, they plaster a picture that's supposed to be of Jesus on the front of their magazine and the question, who was Jesus? And then they go on for 10 pages and answer it incorrectly. And the question was wrong. Who was Jesus? Past tense. What should it be? Who is Jesus? He is alive. That's who He is. Get the question right. But anyway, that's what was going on here. Jesus had been around so many people for three years. Everybody knew at least the name or had heard of Him. And so uh, people were saying things about Him. Wow, He's doing miracles and He uh, is healing people. And boy, is He a prophet. So Jesus takes a diagnostic survey of His 12 apostles who've been with him very closely for three years. He's told them time and again who he was, where he was from, why he came, where he's going. And no doubt Jesus was hearing wrong answers to who he was, why he was there, where he was going. So he asked his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? Peter, James, John, what, what are you guys here? What are people saying about me? And then just as a prelude, Matthew 16, 14 Disciples say, well, Jesus, we've heard that some say that you're John the Baptist, reincarnated or whatever, because John the Baptist got murdered and got his head cut off. Other people are saying you're Elijah, who was promised in the Old Testament, the great prophet who would come before God established his kingdom. Others saying that you're Jeremiah, another great prophet, Jesus, the Old Testament, or one of the other prophets. So the popular fickle mob had all the wrong answers, didn't they, about who Jesus is? And you know what? That pretty much goes on today. Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus, and most of the time the answer is wrong that they're giving. Oh, he's a nice guy. He was a great teacher. I think he existed historically. He had a great impact. He was the second most influential people in the history of the world, I read in one book. The 100 most influential people in the world. 
Jesus is number two. Isn't that amazing? So we're still getting it wrong, or many people are. And so Jesus wants to make sure his apostles got it straight. I've been training you guys for three years. Got all these wrong answers. So Jesus says to his disciples and asks them, okay, guys, who who do you say? Oh, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, one of the 12 apostles, Simon Peter was like the spokesman. He was the vocal guy. He was the A personality type, apparently, in the group of the 12. He was the designated and appointed leader by God of that 12. He was the quarterback of the team. So Simon Peter spoke up and said, Lord, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was the right answer. Lord Jesus, You came from heaven. You represent God. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the the anointed one that fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, that answer pleased Jesus, verse 17. Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you. Peter, you got it right. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Many times Jesus would say, Simon, Simon. Every time he repeated somebody's name twice, that meant that was not good. They got the wrong answer. So Simon only exists one time here. So that's good. Blessed are you, Simon. You got it right. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this truth to you of my identity, of who I am, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you, Peter. You got it right. That's who I am. And then here's the verse I want to camp on. Today's verse 18. And Jesus goes on and says, I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter the rock. One of the apostles. The head apostle. The spokesman of the apostles. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Actually, I want to only emphasize half of that verse in verse 18. The part I want to emphasize is where Jesus says... Begins with the I will statement. I, that's Jesus talking. Red letter if you have a red letter edition of the Bible. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Some of your translations might say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Or the gates of death shall not overpower it. And if you have Hades, maybe it's a capital H. It's a formal name, a proper noun. Taken from the Old Testament. Hades. Many times it referred to just death. It's the abode of the dead. When you died, your soul went to Hades, the grave, the other world. But it also took on other nuances of a negative connotation. Hades. That's why some translations say hell. Not just the abode of the dead, but the abode of the dead who have rejected God. Or hell. It's where you go when you die, when you don't know Jesus Christ, when you don't know God. The opposite of heaven. So Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. One thing that I want to highlight here in this verse 18. Okay, Jesus has been ministering for three years. He has not died on the cross yet. He hasn't risen from the dead yet. He hasn't ascended into heaven yet. Pentecost hasn't happened when God sent the Holy Spirit. And in terms of that time reference, Jesus says to his apostles, I will build my church. Future tense. I will build the church. Very important. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. The church did not exist prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. Some people believe that it did. It did not. The church already existed and was found in the Old Testament. First of all, you would have found the word church in the Old Testament. It's not there. Secondly, Jesus wouldn't be saying, future tense, I'm going to build my church if it already existed. He would have said, I'm, I'm going to keep on building my church. No, it's future tense. It doesn't exist yet. And that's why in the book of Ephesians we've been studying, the Apostle Paul made it clear that 
the church as an institution of God and a special one of redeemed people, of Jews and Gentiles together in one body, was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, didn't exist in the Old Testament, but was revealed at a specific time at the coming of Christ after His death, resurrection, and ascension. Then it was revealed for the first time for all of humanity. It was a hidden secret in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Now we understand and have the perspective. That's why Jesus could say, I will build my church. When did the church begin to exist? The birthday of the church, because GBF, Grace Bible Fellowship Church, we are a part of this church that Jesus promised to build. And the first church began on the day of Pentecost after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead. He said, wait guys, wait till the Holy Spirit comes, then we'll begin the church. Forty days later, God sent the Holy Spirit down on the first believers who believed in Christ. And that's the birthday of the church. So the church began on Pentecost after Jesus ascended into heaven and sent down His Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. And the church has existed in local residences ever since then. So very important to understand the time frame and what Jesus is talking about when He says, I will build my church, because that's what we want to look at today. Jesus has promised to build the church. So let's go ahead and look at that. Uh, If you've got a handout, follow along. And three main truths I want to focus on regarding uh, Matthew 16, 18. And that is that phrase where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of death, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it, shall not overcome it, shall not be victorious over the church. An amazing, encouraging, hopeful statement from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And I I want us to come away with three truths in light of this. That's why I call this Jesus builds the church. Now, ten years ago, I was praying about a church plant in San Antonio, Texas and began reading all the church plant books that were out there and getting all the strategy. And that was a lot of books. And listening to the church plant experts. And there there were some self-professed church plant experts in how to grow a church and plant a church and see it thrive and flourish, learning all the strategies. So I took all that in. And there were some common themes that began to surface and there were some diagnostic questions you needed to ask before you actually think about even planting a church according to conventional wisdom. And here was some of the most important questions that were being asked and ones you had to have an answer for before you began to this venture of trying to plant a church. For example, one of the questions that you need to consider is, what's your marketing strategy? In other words, how are you going to fund this baby? Money, money, money. You can't have a church without the money. What is your marketing strategy? Well, I, I was sunk there. I didn't have one. What is your marketing strategy? But the only strategy that I could come up with after reading all that and hearing all that was, well, let's see, God created the universe. He owns everything. He has infinite riches. I know Him personally because He's my Father. Hey, i got a good connection here. That's my marketing strategy. God, the earth is His footstool. He owns everything. That's it. Another question. Well, who's your demographic? That's important. Who's your demographic? Where's your niche going to be? Whose felt needs are you going to cater to in your community? You've got to figure out the demographic, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, uh, and on and on it goes. All these charts and graphs and everything else. You know, that's a lot of hard, confusing, complicated, laborious, tedious, mundane, insignificant work, according to me. Uh, I thought, I don't, I don't understand because I'm just too simplistic. What's our demographic? What kind of people are we going to cater to? Well, at least according to the Bible, our demo, we do have a demographic, by the way. I'm not disparaging the fact that you need a demographic. We have a demographic. The Bible has one. It's, and I just came up with the answer. It's, it's sinners. That was my demographic. That included like Christians and unbelievers, agnostics, atheists, people who are hostile to Christianity, people who are interested in religion, seekers, unseekers, blah, blah, blah. Sinners. 
You know, that was Jesus' demographic. Luke 19, 10. He said, he came, the Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost sinners. So that simplified things as I was answering the question. Another question. How are you going to attract the people? How are you going to draw the people? How are you going to woo the people? How are you going to psych out the people? And on and on it goes. Um, well, I don't know. I didn't have an answer to that one. Prayed about it, thought about it. And then the other one is, how, how are you going to grow your church? What kind of programs are you going to have? What, what's the appeal going to be? Why are people going to... You've got to give them a reason to come. Why are they going to come? The programs and things that are going to appeal to all classes of society and family and so on and so forth. So those are your basic uh, questions from a human perspective. By the way, one of these books, literally, that I read, it was on uh, church growth and church planting, and it was a bestseller at the time, probably 10, 15 years old. Read through the first 10 chapters, and it had a list of who's who in Christian church planting and church growth today. Experts on church growth and church planting. Name after name after name after name, most of which I was unfamiliar with, and Jesus' name was never mentioned. And you're laughing, and I am serious. Ten chapters in a row, not one Bible verse, and Jesus was never recognized as a specialist and an expert in church growth. That was amazing. So then I simplified. And I, I learned a lot ten years ago as I began to read the books and study and that can become familiar with what's out there. And then, then went back to Scripture and just looked at the New Testament model. I really appreciate what John Howe said. Because that was our goal. We just want to be a biblical church, a New Testament church. That's the model. That's the one that Jesus, that's the pattern Jesus laid down. The apostles, this is how you do it. And you've got everything you need to know about church planting and growing the church right here. This is the manual. This is the church growth book. So I began to study the scriptures and kept coming back to this great verse that Jesus gave, this great promise regarding building the church. So let's go ahead and look at it. As we think about the church as a year old, Grace Bible Fellowship, we've been here a year. It's not a testimony to our greatness, but to God's greatness, to His faithfulness to His provision, to His faithfulness to the promise of His work that Jesus made 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus builds the church. Notice, builds is present tense. It's ongoing, isn't it? That's part of it. So here, here's three promises that I glean from Jesus as He talks about how do we build the church? How have we built the church in the last year at GBF? How are we going to keep building this church? How are we going to sustain it and keep it going maybe for the next 25 years or until Jesus returns again? What is our strategy? What are we going to do? How are we going to pull this thing off? That's, you could get anxious and worked up about all those questions. We don't need to. We can rest in the promise of God. And Jesus' great statement, I will build my church, he said, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. So point number one regarding how to build the church or that goes with the truth that Jesus builds the church is number one, that Jesus owns the church. Very simple, isn't it? Jesus owns the church. There's just three points I put down there. In light of that, Jesus designed the church before the foundation of the world. He planned it. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a corollary, secondary thought because He couldn't pull it off with the Jews in the nation of Israel. Oh, i got to go to backup plan and got to punt and I guess I'll create the church. They didn't believe on me the way that they should. No, the church itself is an entity, institution, and people of God was planted in eternity past and just one portion of a verse I want to read, Ephesians 1.4, where the Apostle Paul says to Christians who are a part of the church, he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. He chose believers who are in the church to be a part of the church before we ever existed, before this world ever existed. In eternity past, 
So it was planned by God and by Christ Himself, the church. He owns the church, so He designed it. The other thing in light of the fact that Jesus owns the church is that Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. If you've got a Bible, look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts 20, 28, the Apostle Paul was a church planter. He believed in Matthew 16, 18 and lived by it, trusted in it. He planted a church in Ephesus. He trained up leadership. He spent at least three years there. He raised up a plurality of elders, as Lois was talking about, the importance of biblical plurality of elders. That was the biblical model. And Paul is now leaving Ephesus, this church that he planted, the leadership that he trained up. And he's going to plead with these elders to do their job. Keep doing your job as I leave. Here are your priorities. Shepherd the flock of God. Protect the flock of God. Teach the flock of God. Notice that the flock of God. The church that belongs to God. The church that belongs to Christ. It's not your church elder. It's not your church pastor. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. That's his point. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves, elders, overseers, pastors, and for all of the flock that has been trusted to you among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you an elder in the church. Who makes an elder or a pastor in the church? Not human people, ultimately. It is the Holy Spirit of God that ordains a man to that position, isn't it? Or at least it should be. You're an overseer, a pastor, elder, because the Holy Spirit has ordained you to do that. To do what? To shepherd the church of God. Shepherd means the emphasis there is on nurturing, protecting, taking care of, feeding, because the church is about people, isn't it? Which is what uh, Jackie Yao said. It's about people. Not about programs, not about buildings. It's about people, and it's about people with needs. Shepherd these people. Shepherd the people of the church. And notice, it's the church of God, the church that belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to the Holy Spirit, which He purchased with His own blood. That is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who willfully, deliberately, in a planned way, came down to the earth that He created had His ministry, and died on the cross for sin, purposefully absorbed God's wrath in His own body for sin. And Jesus knew what He was doing the whole time. He was purchasing a people of God. He was paying the penalty for the church by dying in their behalf, providing forgiveness of sin. Jesus bought back sinners through the death of His cross. That is redemption. He bought back. And the price was an infinite one and a valuable one. And that was His life. That's what it means. He gave His blood. He gave His life for the church. He died for us. There is no greater example of love than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. So we were purchased, bought back. Bought back out of what? I've been redeemed. I've been purchased. I was a slave on the slave market and Jesus purchased me out of the slave market. I was a slave of sin, a slave of Satan, a slave of the world, a slave to death, physical death, eternal death. I was not in control of my own life. Everything else was a master to me. And you know what else? I was a slave to myself, a slave to my own sin, my own agenda. And the Lord Jesus Christ purchased me with His death. On an individual basis, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ bought you purposefully off the slave market of sin and death. And He also bought the church as a corporate entity as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, He bought us with His own blood. And if you pay something in full for it, you own it. Jesus owns the church. 
And finally, because Jesus Jesus is called the head of the church, uh, just I want to look at Ephesians 5:25 and the reference there, where it's Paul is talking about how uh, husbands and wives should function in the home and what their proper roles are. And he makes a parallel there, and he's talking about Christ as well and what his role is as Savior in relation to the body of Christ, the church. So now he's talking in Matthew, uh, Ephesians 5.25. He says, Husband, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially in love. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, I'm sorry. Back to verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. So Jesus Christ is the head of the body. He is in charge. He is the authority. He is in control. We take orders from him. That's what it means. He owns the church. He's the Lord of the church. Revelation 2 and 3 says he's the Lord of the churches. He addresses the seven churches. He owns them all. He walks in their midst. He knows what they're doing. He makes promises and judgments. And the Lord Jesus would do the same today among GBF. I know what you're doing. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses because I am the head of this church. I own this church. So let's never forget that. Point number one. Jesus called it my church. Number two, Jesus grows the church. In that verse, he said, I will build. That's a promise, isn't it? Present says, I will build. And the implication is, I will keep on building a church. And I will do it. The Lord Jesus builds the church. So people ask, people like to go to uh, successful pastors with mega churches and lots of people. Boy, how have you been growing the church? How did you pull this off? What are your strategies? And a faithful pastor who understands God's word and the promise of Jesus will say the same thing. I'm not growing the church. I'm not building the church. Jesus is. It's his church. And he gave the promise. He said he would do it. It's his job. I can't replace him. There is no vacancy in this role, responsibility of building and growing the church. That's Christ's responsibility. He said it was his job. I will build the church, said the Lord Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? That just gives me a great sense of relief. It takes a lot of the onus of responsibility off of my shoulders as pastor-teacher of this church where humans will quickly look to you to build all McManus. He's got to build the church. He's the man. No, I ain't. I can't build the church. Only the Lord Jesus can, and He is. It's a great promise. I will build my church. Jesus grows the church. Present tense. I will build. It's a promise. How does Jesus build the church? Well, He's been doing it for 2,000 years. And just by way of reminder... How does Jesus build the church? He doesn't do it with human mechanisms, by the way. He doesn't do it with money, necessarily, or human means. Uh, three ways I highlight. Jesus builds the church through the Holy Spirit of God. Acts 1.8. If you've got your Bible, look there. Acts 1.8. That just picks up the story where Jesus died, buried, rose again, about to ascend into heaven. Hasn't gone yet. He collects his 12, 11 uh, apostles before him, giving them their last marching orders. Okay, guys, I'm about to leave. Here's what I want you to do. I've trained you for three years to take over the work that I began to do and teach. Because that's what Acts chapter 1 says, the first account I proposed about all that Jesus began to do. Did you know that Jesus did not complete everything He wanted to do the first time He was here? He completed everything regarding salvation on the cross. Yes, salvation was taken care of. But in terms of starting the church practically, carrying it on, discipling the people, planting churches here on earth that hadn't been culminated and completed by Jesus because He was entrusting that to His disciples and believers to do. That's why verse 1 of Acts, all that Jesus began to do, now He's handing over the baton and the torch to the apostles who will then pass it on to the next generation. And it's been going on for 2,000 years. Christ has been building His church. But how did He do that? Not through human strength or wisdom, but through the power of His Holy Spirit. Look at verse 
uh, 6, where his apostles or disciples ask him. They know he's about to leave. And so they came together and they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel and all those promises in the Old Testament and fulfill everything once and for all? And verse 7, Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, God isn't always going to answer all of your questions. Just because you have a question doesn't mean, number one, it's a legitimate question, or number two, that you're going to get an answer. I hear that all the time. Questions, questions, questions. Most of, I have to say, well, I don't know the answer to that one. I'm just like you. It's a mystery. We'll find out maybe someday from the Lord himself. And that's what happened here. They're asking a question that was actually an illegitimate question. But Jesus gives them an answer anyway. Uh, here's, what, here's what the plan is. You guys want to jump to the millennium and the eternal state. We're not there yet. We've got a whole epic of time called the church we have to accomplish. That's verse 8. But you, apostles, are going to receive power, dunamis, dynamite, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you down from heaven, then you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria, surrounding country, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So God's intention was He was going to build the church and He was going to infiltrate it throughout the entire world. And the way He was going to do that was through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to take these 12 uneducated, clumsy kind of Galilean fishermen and energize them with the Holy Spirit to accomplish His work to build His church. He does it through the Holy Spirit. He said that in the Old Testament. It was the same there as well. Not through might, not through power, but by My Spirit, says the Lord. That's how God accomplishes His work, through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's what He does today. Every time somebody becomes a Christian, one of the things that God first does is He puts the Holy Spirit inside that believer to empower them and help them grow. So He builds the church through His Holy Spirit. He also builds uh, the church through the truth of His Word. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living. It is alive. It is dynamic. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it literally pierces into people's hearts, into their mind, into their conscience. That's how God works on people. It's through the truth of His Word. That's why it says Jesus came doing His ministry preaching and teaching. That's what Jesus did. Those were His tools. That's how He worked. That's how He made a difference. That's how He laid the foundation. It was through teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching what? The Word of God. The Old Testament. That's why one of Jesus' favorite statements, when He was speaking authoritatively, declaring publicly, He would say, It is written. And then He would quote from the Old Testament to validate the truth, to validate His point. It stands on the authority of God's written Word. It is written. And literally the way that was translated, is it stands written. Which meant it was written hundreds and thousands of years ago, but the truth lives on forever. It stands written. So that's what Jesus did. He taught from the truth of the Word of God, and that's how people's lives are changed, through the truth of the Word of God. The Bible, that's why the Bible must be taught. This is the heart of church growth. People coming to be exposed to, understand, submit to, and apply the Word of God. That's why the mandate, 2 Timothy 4, 4. Part of the job description of a pastor is what? Preach the Word. The Word of God. That is a command. It's an obligation. That's what I am compelled to do and held accountable to do. Preach the Word of God. Teach God's truth. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said. It's all about the Word. It helps us in every area of life. And by the way, the, the, the truth of the Word of God being taught and penetrating hearts and minds and consciences of people is actually the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to mold and change people. So it's the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the truth of the Word of God in somebody's life is what makes a difference. 
Look at, uh, if you've got your Bible, look at Acts 16. Here's one example of that great truth where you've got the Holy Spirit of God who's working on people's hearts, convicting in conjunction with the truth of the Word of God, the Bible, changing a person's life for eternity. Her name was Lydia. She was not born again, but she did have a fear of God. She knew about the true God, but not to fullness. Paul comes into her town in Philippi. In verse 10 of Acts 16, it says that Paul was preaching the Gospel. He was preaching the Word of God. He was preaching the truth of Scripture. And Lydia heard this. She heard the truth of Scripture. She heard about Jesus and what He did and who He was. And then He rose again from the dead and He was alive. So she heard the message. She heard the preaching of the Gospel, says verse 10. And then in verse 14, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a cell of, of purple fabrics, she was a worshiper of God. And she, wouldn't, she wasn't born again yet. But God was working on her heart. She was listening to this biblical truth. And look at this. After hearing a certain amount of truth, it said, the Lord opened her heart. That is awesome. That is the sovereign work of God in salvation in an individual's life. It was the Lord who opened her heart to do what? To respond to the things spoken by Paul. What did Paul speak? The Word of God. The Gospel. The truth of the Bible. Who Jesus was. That's what it takes. The Spirit of God and the Word of God working on a person's heart to open their eyes to see the truth. And that's how God builds His church. He grows the church by people, one person at a time. And then finally, so God grows His church through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and also through His people. We are not exempt from this. We have the great, unbelievable privilege as Christians, as believers, to co-labor with Jesus Christ. He's the master builder, but we are His helpers and His aides. And we get to help Jesus build the church. We're His foreman. Actually, we're His underlings. Jesus is building the church and we get to aid and assist Him in doing that. Even the Apostle Paul recognized this in Corinthians and he said that we are privileged to be co-laborers with God, co-workers with God as He builds His church. We've already seen in Ephesians 4 where it talks about God gave people to the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, leadership in the church, people who are going to teach the Word of God, model the Word of God in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to do what? To equip the saints, that's believers, to give you the tools to do what? To do the work of the ministry in the church. Not the pastor doesn't do it all. The elders don't do it all. It's every Christian has been called to do the ministry in the local church. And then Paul goes on in that chapter to talk about doing the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. Literally, the growing of the church. How do you grow a church? In conjunction with obedience to Jesus Christ as a co-laborer doing it the way He said to do, using your gift, serving in the local church for His glory as He edifies and grows the church through time. So we're a part of it. It's a wonderful, fantastic privilege we have. So Jesus owns the church. Jesus grows the church. And finally, let's look at the last one. Jesus sustains the church. You know, there's many great things that have started, right? And then kind of petered out and fizzled out over, over time. I mean, just look at history and there's testimony of it all over the place. Well, the question is, well, what about the church that Jesus Christ started 2,000 years ago? Has it been sustained with continuity perpetually without ever failing? Because some religions would say no. Actually, it died out in the 1830s at least, or before the 1830s. The church of Jesus Christ, it did exist for a while, and then in the Middle Ages it got snuffed out and really wasn't around. And God's authority was gone. So a new church had to resurrect the true church of Christ. 
the Latter-day Saints. That's their official theology. Literally, they believe that the church stopped existing. It was overcome by death and evil. In other words, Jesus' promise was not fulfilled. But we believe Jesus' promise is fulfilled. Jesus will sustain the church. He's been sustaining it. He will continue to sustain it until it is totally completed. God has a design, by the way. He's, the church is called His bride. And He is decorating His bride. He is dressing His bride. He is preparing His bride. For what? For the culmination? For wedding day! When the church in corporate unity, every believer, comes together and is married to the Lord Jesus Christ at the consummation of what the church is all about. And that is still yet future. And that is going to happen. Jesus is going to bring it to completion. He's going to guarantee it. He's going to sustain the church. And that's why He said, the gates of death will not prevail. The, dates, the gates of death are not going to overcome the church. Hell itself will not overcome the church. Satan himself cannot stop the church. Which at least means it's going to continue to perpetuate and exist. I've heard pastors, since I've been here in this area, say, the church in the Bay Area is dead. Or the church in the Bay Area is absent. I don't believe that. I think that is an insult to Jesus Christ. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He sustains the church with His people. And just by way of reminder, some of the things that Jesus said before He left and ascended into heaven, He promised the apostles who would start the church. And He said in Matthew 28.20, 20, You need to go out and make disciples of the whole world, teaching them everything I've told you. And He gave a promise and He said, Lo, I am with you always. I am with you forevermore constantly and forever in your immediate presence and for all of time. That's a promise from Jesus. He's never going to leave us. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 says the same thing. Jesus Himself and God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is not going to abandon His church. His work is not done yet. Jesus sustains the church. It goes on. Uh, B, Jesus guarantees ultimate victory over our enemies. What would snuff out the church or stop the church? What's trying to prevent the church? Well, our enemies, right? Well, do we have a strategy to overcome our enemies? Who are our enemies, by the way? Who are the enemies of the church? Satan is the most formidable, and he's real. And his minions, his demons. And people that he indwells and who are antagonistic to Christ and the gospel. And Christians are being, have been murdered and martyred for 2,000 years. And that will continue. The world will continue to hate the church. That's what Jesus said. That was one of his promises. that he loved. We love the promises of God, don't we? One of the promises of Jesus was the world is going to hate you. The world is going to kill some of you. That's a promise you can count on. And it's still true in 2007. So we're going to have ongoing constant opposition from our enemies in the world. But we have ultimate victory over our enemies because of these promises from Scripture. 1 John 5.5 says, Who is the one who has overcome the world? The one that knows Jesus Christ personally. You have overcome the world. You are an overcomer. You will go on and have victory. Literally is what it means. I put Romans 8 verse 31 to 39 there, because it says if you're a Christian, if, if God loves you and you have a personal relationship with Christ and Christ is your Savior and on His, on His team, who is your enemy? Who's going to overcome you? Nobody. No one can separate us from the love of Christ or the love of God that is in Christ. That's guaranteed victory. If you have time to read that passage on your own, Romans 8, 31 to 39. A wonderful promise. And then finally, He guarantees our ultimate completion and perfection. And I already alluded to this, and I want to read it in closing, and that's Ephesians. Go ahead and look at it. What is Jesus doing? Well, He's building the church. He's been building it for 2,000 years. He's building it, by the way, with people. Did you know? As cells are to the human body, individual believers are to the corporate body of the church. If you're a Christian, every one of you is like a living cell of the body of Christ. And that's how... Christ is building His church through individual saved 
believers. And he's got a task he wants to complete, and that's Ephesians 5.25, so let's go ahead and look at it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. He still loves the church. He gave Himself up for the church. Why? Verse 26, in order that He might sanctify her, purify her, clean her, present tense. He's always sanctifying and growing the church. The church is always maturing all throughout time. That's Christ's promise. Sanctifying the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word of God. Why? Verse 27, in order that the purpose of someday in the future... God, Christ, might present Himself to the church. That is on wedding day. Jesus Christ is going to be married to the church. That is the goal. That's going to happen. It is guaranteed in order that He might present Himself to the church in all her glory. She is going to be a perfect bride. Christ is going to perfect the church. Right now, it's got glitches, doesn't it? Right now, the church has uh, it, it is dysfunctional. It is sinful. It is weak. But it's growing. It needs to mature. We are... Engaged to Christ. We're going to be His bride and He's going to bring us to perfection, to glory, to great beauty. Without notice, He goes on, verse 27, having no spot or wrinkle. Someday, the corporate church is going to have no spot or wrinkle. Because we've got plenty of spots and wrinkles right now, don't we? In the church, we do. Because we are sinful. The good news is He's going to perfect us, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, should be holy and blameless. When is that day going to happen? When is Christ going to perfect His church and have that wedding day? There is actually a wedding, a wedding feast that's going to take place and it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 19 where it says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah for all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's every Christian who's been a part of the church all throughout history will be in a glorified state with every other Christian who is in a glorified state perfecting and making this glorified, beautiful bride that will be married to the Lord Jesus Christ for all time and eternity. That is an awesome Awesome thought. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing and that's why He is committed to sustaining His precious bride. It's like if you're married. You don't let people say bad and nasty things about your wife or fiancé, do you? Oh, she's ugly. She's got warts. She's got scars. Uh, you get a little defensive, don't you? Yeah, well, the church is the bride of Christ. We are married to Him. And woe be unto the man who picks on the church and knocks the church and criticizes the church undermines the church, critiques the church illegitimately. You're talking about the bride of Christ that will be perfected someday and reign with Christ for all time in glory. So let's be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church working through individual lives with a plan regarding His church. And GBF is privileged. This local church and every other local church, by the way, is a part of this wonderful plan as we're being prepared to be married to Jesus Christ for all eternity. And that's reason to celebrate and thank God for His wonderful grace because we certainly don't deserve it or haven't earned it, have we? We haven't. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in and listening and following along. And I just pray that if you're a believer, your heart is tremendously encouraged. You are part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Lord. Thank Him for this wonderful day and time of fellowship. Father, we do thank You for... We thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the reminder from Scripture. It is the truth of the, the Bible, which is the living Word of God, is what You used to penetrate people's hearts and their minds. That's how You work on them and convict them and draw them to Yourself. And thank You for every person here who knows Jesus Christ personally and is reminded as I am that You're building the church. We get to be part of it. And we even have the great privilege of being engaged and married to You, Lord Jesus Christ, the husband of the church. 
encourage us with that great truth. Thank you for every visitor that is here today, that your hand of blessing would be upon them. They've been encouraged in some way today. And also that your hand of blessing would be upon us now at our fellowship meal and we can talk and fellowship, learn people and rejoice together. And it's all for your glory, God. And we commit it to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.